Hey there, listeners. Come on. Come on in. Sit yourself down by the fire here. This is an episode-by-episode watch-along podcast for the new Wheel of Time TV show. Unless, of course, you're listening at some point after the inevitable reboot, in which case this is a podcast about the old Wheel of Time TV show. But never mind that dark feature, and never mind the trollics. Here's the podcast! Sorry, no one should podcast <laughs> covered in crumb. Um, hi, hello, listeners. Here's the podcast. I'm just jumping into it right now. Um, I am Sarah. She they pronouns and uh, oh, what was going to be my wheel of time L for this one? Um, I thought that her name was Niavine for about twelve years of my life. I'm Max. I use he/him pronouns. Oh, gee, I, I, oh, what is my Wheel of Time, L? You, you don't have to have any. You, you'll get them. Don't worry, you'll get there. That's right. I'm a sinless baby. I have no L's <laughs> as of yet. But Sarah is setting the tone for all of this. This needs to be the podcast of L's for us, I guess. I'll think on it. Come back to me. I'm Nina, she, they pronouns. And I spent way too much of this episode wondering why fantasy women always have so much hair. Uh, and I'm Tom, he, him. And uh, I want to say I spent about 12 years thinking it was Nynaeve. That's what it is. Nynaeve. Isn't it Nynaeve? I thought of an L. I thought of an L. Mm-hmm. I became Cinema Sims in this episode because I did notice oh, continuity errors. Boo. Ooh, yeah, you, you told us mm. about that. Moment of silence for Max's dignity as a podcaster. Oh, that's been long gone. Truly disappointing. You know, you need to make one of those YouTube faces, like <laughs> the huge overreaction. Top two, Wheel of Time, episode two, continuity errors. Uh, yes, welcome to the podcast where we watch Wheel of Time episodes and point out continuity errors in them. Um, we also might, as a treat, uh, go in depth into discussing our thoughts and things that we thought about the episode. Those would also be thoughts, really. Um, shall we jump into your recap and then start chatting we open on an army encamped men dressed in long robes and cloaks of pristine white emblazoned with golden suns they have a captive a sister of the Aes Sedai in the custody of a man they call the questioner but he is done asking questions he has tortured this woman mutilated her and now he watches her burn at the stake Moraine and her party bodyguard Lan and the four youngsters from the two rivers ride hard ahead of a Trolloc warband. Only deep water will slow the Trollocs, and so Moraine leads them to the nearest ferry. Once across, they are safe, but knowing that the Darkspawn could use the ferry to cross after them, Moraine sinks it with the one power. The ferryman dives in to try to save his boat, and is dragged under by the whirlpool. That night, as the others sleep fitfully, Moraine takes Egwene aside. The Aes Sedai has sensed in the girl the first flickerings of the One Power. Egwene could be an Aes Sedai, and whether she wills it or no, the power will come to her in time. Bad dreams haunt all the youngsters, dreams of dead bats, and when they awake the campground is littered with the real thing. Moraine orders them to mount up and go, now, but Rand challenges her. Egwene sides with the Aes Sedai, and soon the others grudgingly follow. 
On the way, they meet a party of the white-cloaked soldiers, the questioner among them. Moraine disguises herself. These zealots would happily kill any Aes Sedai they meet, and she is in no state to fight them. And with a passel of true but misleading statements, she talks her way through. In the process, we learn that the wound she took in the battle will not heal without an Aes Sedai's touch, and no sister can heal herself. They travel on for several more days, but tired and hurt, they are moving too slowly now. Lan leads them close to the fallen city, Shadar Lagoth, a place of darkness and evil that even Trollocs fear. The shriek of a fade wakes them, all save Moraine, who is too sick from her wound to rouse. Without her, their only choice is to take refuge behind the crumbling walls of that fell ruin. The city is beautiful but desolate. There is nothing living within, not even insects. Lan advises them to take nothing, touch nothing, eat and drink only what they brought themselves. Naturally, Matt sneaks out in the night. A flitting shadow seems to lead him down empty passages to a rubbish-strewn room, and there he finds a small chest, within a gorgeous dagger, its blade hooked, and a giant gem set in the pommel. No sooner is it in his hands than the city comes alive, for lack of a better word. Something like a carpet of darkness spreads across every surface, and when it touches something living, one of their horses, the poor beast dissolves into ash and dust. Everyone flees. But the swiftly spreading shag carpet of doom separates them. Perrin and Egwene, Rand and Matt, and Moraine and Lan each leave the city by a different route. Lan stops to care for Moraine, but distracted by her plight, he doesn't notice someone sneaking up on them. He is surprised by a knife pressed against his throat, and behind him we hear Nynaeve snarl, If you don't take me to them right now, I will slit your throat. Congratulations, Max, you have a point on the predictions list. <laughs> that was like the, the, the easiest layup I could have made, but... That was the free space. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah, I got, that's the, yeah. Um, was that you or did I interrupt? Uh, no, that's that's me. I'm done. That's me for this episode. Okay. I'm out. See you guys. Bye, Tom. Good to have you. <laughs> <laughs> all done. Do we want to start sort of at the start with all the white cloak stuff? Yeah, I'm, I'm far quad white pointing right now. I, I don't want to talk about white cloaks at all. I don't want to see them. I don't want to think about them. Let's had, move on. I had forgotten they existed. I feel like I if were I a costume and hair designer, I'm looking at Sarah right now. Um, it would be a deliberate design choice on my part to make them all look like they have alt-right haircuts. Uh-huh. I noticed that too. Yeah. I thought that the, um, something about how fitted their white robes are and the way that the, the cloak sort of crosses their chests made me think of a straight jacket. Mm. Huh. Because mm, there's like straps and belts holding everything together. Yeah, mm -hmm. and it all looks constricting. I, I do think they do look really good. They just <laughs> they have they have yeah. a bit of drip there, um, but it's very sinister. They use that totally stark white to contrast with like the very red blood, and it's all yeah, yeah, it's bad. Yeah. And their armor somehow looks both very showy but also practical. Yeah, Nina really liked those shoulder pauldrons. Yeah, I loved the I loved the shoulder thing on it. Mm -hmm. It's very sinister. I mean, like the the most obviously the most striking thing about them is like how bright they are compared to literally everything else in like the entire world, which really serves to kind of contrast. Oh, they look like they could be good, but 
nah, uh-uh, <laughs> nope. Yeah, yeah. Because and I started thinking about this like last week, a few weeks ago, whenever someone like on Twitter pointed out about like the specific skin color of all the castings and that it's like it's really racially diverse but then someone pointed out that so far the two people with the darkest like actual skin tone have been this questioner man mm. and then like Pad and Fane was yeah. really mm-hmm. dark in the first episode and like you know they were like that's a bit sus but like w- yeah. we'll keep an eye on it and like how mm-hmm. it goes on but like I know it just got me thinking about how much Wheel of Time draws on the trope of light equals good, dark equals bad. And then, like, on top of that, they've added this very racially di- racially diverse cast and, and group. And I'm just like, I don't know if they're, like, playing with that in this, because, like, you have, like, the hordes of the dark, the Trollocs, and they're led by the extremely pale Fade. And then you've got, like, the white cloaks who are supposedly for good, and they're led by the extremely dark-skinned Red. Well, I don't think that guy leads them. He's just, like, representing them and like i'm like is this something they're doing here like where they're playing with like what is good and what is evil like or is it just kind of happenstance on like who was the best actor and who they cast i don't know i kind of want to just like bring that up now to sort of come back to it i was thinking about that too and are they like taking advantage of deeply rooted like deeply ingrained racist ideas about like scary black men hmm to make these particular characters who are scary and are black men like that much more scary. Mm. Yeah, because they also do this because the episode opens up with like a little boy who's been teleported out of the Indian Raj into this situation. Right. Even down to his clothing. Yeah. With like the color, like the, the silver tray on a plate, like it's completely colonial British India. And like they know, right? And he's terrified of this man. You can tell from the moment they hand him the platter and he has to walk to that table. He is so frightened. And also, while the casting for Wheel of Time has been very diverse, uh, especially in the Two Rivers, if you look at the background white cloaks, they're all white dudes. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. That doesn't seem like an accident. Mm. Yeah. And like Max pointed out, they all have the like 2015 era Nazi haircut. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To kind of compound on the little you know scared boy from the raj essentially bringing the meal like you see like all these really nice ornate tents set up like this isn't like a hastily thrown together camp this was it really does feel reminiscent of like british colonialism or like you know any kind of colonialism setting these like very nice camps to have like as many comforts from home as you possibly can because speaking of colonialism like they mention in the scene where they question moiraine they're like anyone passing through our land yeah blah 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 and then lan is like this isn't your land. And they're like, all land is our land. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Everywhere the light touches is our land. Well, and that all white suit, like the all white linen suit is also an artifact of the colonial era. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, That pure stark white, especially traveling in the woods, like it's so unnatural. It's so impossible. And it's so directly contrasted with the natural earth tones of all mm-hmm. the two rivers kids. Mm, mm. The cleanliness of it is really uncanny. And then the other thing that adds to how sinister it all is, is the fact that they caught an Aes Sedai. We've seen what these women can do. Mm -hmm. And the fact that a bunch of people who don't have any magical power managed to catch this woman and keep her captive tells you 
ah, yes, we should be very afraid <laughs> of these people. Yeah. yeah. And then you see his like his like wallet chain that has six other rings on it. Mm-hmm. I, I'm wondering, does this opening scene establish that you need hands to be able to channel? I Yes. That's my read. Oh, interesting. Okay. I would not necessarily have assumed that from this scene, but cool. <laughs> Either hands or uh, being able to talk. Um, cause that's, those are the two things they've taken away from this woman. Mm. Uh, and every time we see Moraine channeling, she does do things with her hands mm. yes. in the bath. She does a little thing when she's healing. She does a thing with her hands. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. I, I feel like the episode really, cause I think the next time you see Moraine use magic is when they're crossing the Terran and like, I, like the shot, it's like mostly her hands, like, you know, swirling the water around. I think like it was a very deliberate move of like showing that, yeah, you said last week, Sarah, it was some Yoshikage Kira shit. And yep. I didn't realize how it literally is. <laughs> I wasn't fucking around. Yeah. And I guess the rings that the Aes Sedai wear, I mean, at first I thought the rings had something to do with channeling power, but mm-hmm. it seems that they might more just be like a more ornamental, like seal type thing of showing like, yeah, I'm an Aes Sedai. I got this big old ring. Mm-hmm. The opening that they do, the the new intro cinematic um is very much like weaving themed. It looks like they're mm-hmm. weaving a tapestry on a loom, clearly also inspired by Game of Thrones. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, yeah. I don't weave and don't know a ton about it, but the sort of subtle finger movements that the Aes Sedai make when they're channeling make me think of somebody like working thread. Mm. That's interesting because I know a lot about weaving. No. And like, I didn't consider that. Actually, maybe because I know a lot about weaving and I know it's mostly just leaning backwards and forwards. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like it is braiding more. Mm. Um, and yeah, it does. Maybe the wheel of time is a spinning wheel. The braiding you were talking about, you know, the first scene in the, sh- well, not the exact first scene, but one of the very first scenes of the show is braiding the hair. Mm. Mm. And immediately mm. after braiding the hair, oh. she falls is pushed into the river. Um, And the thing she has to do in the river is trust the river, relax, let it carry you along. And that's the same way that Moraine approaches getting her in touch with the power. Yeah, I love that that like has come back already. I saw that first scene in the first episode and I was like, oh, that's just like Sidar. And it's I'm glad that it's like next episode. They like explain that that's sort of it's all it's all just Mm -hmm. trust in the river. Um, yeah. yeah. Since Sarah is using some terms that haven't been used in the show yet, let's just clarify that Sidar is another word for the one power. Have like a little glossary going on. I can see on your face, Sarah, that you want to explain no, how that's not no, quite exactly no, right. No. <laughs> the show hasn't explained it. I will revert to using the Juan power. Mm. My question is, was there some point when a whole bunch of fantasy authors got really into meditation and decided like, ah, meditation is going to be integral to our magic system? Because I don't know if any of you read Tamara Pierce when you were younger. She did a lot of like YA girl hero fantasy books um, that I was obsessed with (laughs) when I was young. But one of the big things for magic users there is that they're all taught to meditate, and it's one of the things that is essential for them in doing magic is being able to clear their minds, calm their bodies. Mm. And it felt very much like this scene between Moraine and Egwene. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, probably just like the seventies <laughs> yeah. in general, just new aginess. Yeah. Yeah. At the same time, I, it's so tropey, but it's like a trope that I'm really willing to just kind of forgive and ignore because, yeah, it makes sense. You know, you have to clear your mind to be able to use this power that clearly exhausts you. But what interests me is the sort of like the two main, I don't want to use the term allegories, but like the, the two main ways Moraine explains sort of like how the one power interacts with the world to a queen is the wind and like running water. And it's interesting to me, like, if you, like, walk into the woods and you kind of chill out and just listen, like, depending where you are, but, like, in a lot of places, the main things you can hear outside of, like, animals is, like, the wind going through the trees. And if you're near a creek, you can hear the water flowing. So it really feels like a sort of, again, it's so, so tropey of, like, kind of being in touch with the world. But it's something that is just, like, it just, it works so well that it's like, yeah, you know, it's, it, that's a good trope. I'll, I'll allow this one. <laughs> yeah. Um, Max, do you have any other like gamer thoughts about how the magic system is turning out to work? Um, so less gamer thoughts, more continuing the theme of talking about JoJo's Bizarre Adventure Part Four: Diamond is Unbreakable. <laughs> because not only does the questioner do some Yoshikage Kira shit with her hands, but when Moraine mentions that she can't use her own magic to heal herself, oh yeah, I'm like, okay, so she has crazy diamond. <laughs> <laughs> she can hurt other people, but she can't like use her power on herself, which I guess make you know that makes sense, right? It's a circular thing of like she's clearly exhausting her own sort of like stamina and life energy, healing it on others. So it's like you can't plug an outlet into its own socket and mm. get infinite power that way, right? It doesn't <laughs> make sense. Um, yeah. So yeah, no gamer thoughts, but anime thoughts, which is I guess very very. The Venn diagram's almost a circle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't know anything about JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, so we absolutely cannot contribute <laughs> to that <laughs> part of the conversation. <laughs> I think you're probably for, better off for for some for some context. Um, Yoshikage Kira is a he he just he just holds women's hands a lot, and they are not attached to the women's bodies. That's all you need. Ah, to know. okay then. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that, so yeah. with no context for uh, for that, since you gave us a heads up about it last episode, we spent this episode thinking like, okay, which of these many horrifying things is the one that Sarah yeah. was talking about? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, just to, to finish off our discussions about white cloaks and so we can f leave them behind as soon as possible. Please. Um, they are so cartoonishly evil here yeah. like it is mm -hmm. the most over the top like gratuitous like hitting me in the face with a big cartoon hammer mm -hmm. being like this group of people are fucking evil like did you know do you get yeah. it do you like everything about the scene is just all the touching uh when they oh, stop and he's yeah. just well and you touching. just keep you just keep waiting for him to hurt her it's like okay one of these mm -hmm. is going to be him breaking her finger or like Mm -hmm. At some point, this is going mm -hmm. to turn gnarly, and you keep yeah, waiting like, for it. Every time he touches her, you're like, is it this one? Textually, yeah. in the script, I love that his line is like, she, you know, says blessings of the light be upon you or something. Some completely normal, nothing pleasantry. And he's like, oh, I'm afraid your belief is wrong. He's like, the light needs no instruction. Yeah. Your way of believing in the, in the light Mm, I don't approve of that. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And even like in the food he eats, it just like so much goes to show it's like, oh, look at this cool dish of just a fully cooked, non-boned dead bird that like, oh, I love how it, 
it, it doesn't hurt, but it makes your mouth bleed. And it's like, all right, tone, tone it down, man. Do you, <laughs> so, somebody watched that Denethor eating tomatoes scene it, oh, in Lord of the Rings. It, it's the exact same thing. Yeah. So do you, do you guys know about the real life bird thing? Yeah. Yeah. That like when you eat it, you like cover yourself with a tile to hide your sin from God. It's so over the top. I'll stick to my chicken tenders, please, and thank you. <laughs> they're like larks or something, right? They're some kind of... Yeah, they're called tiny. an orlatan. I, like, I have mm. a wiki page for it. <laughs> an or, mm. orlat, or, or No, ortolan bunting. Okay, a bunting, yeah. And it's just a little bird that you Aww. make. And you, like, boil it alive and in, like, special wine and you eat it. Yeah, it's, uh-uh. Ortolan Bunting sounds like a place name from this show that <laughs> yeah, we would was, learn yeah. that in the old tongue it means like small bird eaten. <laughs> See, I thought you were going to go for Gundam name there. Um, <laughs> hey, that would work too. Also a yeah. legit Gundam um, name. <laughs> and yeah, um, the final thing that I wanted to, before we leave behind the White Cloaks, is mention that like this episode has like three kinds of evil in it. Like it has the, like the white cloaks in it, and then it has the like Trollocs and the shadow, and then it has the like the shag carpet of evil in Shadow Logoth. Um, <laughs> and I'm just mm-hmm. like hmm, looking at mm-hmm. it and thinking about mm-hmm. it. The dark one's eye is truly upon us. Mm. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> but what I liked about Shadar Logoth is that sense of it being separate from the other evil we've encountered. It's like an independent, yeah. different mm-hmm. evil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's third-party evil. <laughs> also, Shadar Logoth sounds like a name from a uh, like a Lovecraft novel, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, it does. It Shadow is basically in the name. Yeah. If you're Australian, you're just saying Shadow. <laughs> Shit, I like. I remembered this sequence from the books so poorly that in my head there were tentacles. I was sure there were tentacles. <laughs> okay, there was. Okay, definitely because. I mean, we could talk about it later in big spoilers, but like the nasty stuff is like mist in the books, and I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure that Robert Jordan like describes it as like tendrils of mist. So that makes sense. Mm. I feel like that would definitely not jive well with how we see Moraine use magic then, because her using the one power looks like tendrils of mist in the first episode. Yeah, so I, yeah, yeah like I can see that. If that's what it was in the books, they'd have to definitely give it a redesign. Yeah, I. Like, I was really, everything about the design of Shadow Logoth, I would like. Oh my god. I love it. Mwah, Gorgeous. Kiss. I, it's just completely monochromatic. It's just this black city. There's no color. There's no life. I love how just, it's just so close packed in. It feels, when you see, like, the roof line, it feels like an old Italian city or something. Yeah. Like, you see a lot of domes and towers, like... It looks like like you're in Florence or something or like Tuscany. It's it's gorgeous. With the shape of the doorways and the colonnades and stuff, I actually thought of sort of southern Spain, mm. like Roman and North African and this mix. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the walls didn't make me think of anything so much as Attack on Titan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Walled, dense. Oh city. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the, the giant, the, like the really, there. really high, thick walls. The outer yeah. wall. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean the the like unnaturally pristine nature of the city. I know we don't want to talk about them anymore, but it reminds me of the White Cloaks. It's the same kind of thing. Yeah. Mm. That sinister mm. lifelessness. And, like, there's a beauty to it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's meant to be beautiful, um, and yet it's also horrible. Yeah, yeah. 
And like, yeah. I, I think actually I, I'm, this might be from something that like one of the creators or designers had said, but like all the like lattices on the windows, making them look like their eyes, like staring at you. Mm. Mm. I did have to laugh at that one scene with uh, Rand and Egwene when they're standing like on the third floor of a yeah. of a crumbling building. And I was like, that's just the Flatiron building. <laughs> it's, literally what I, it's, literally, it's literally what I said when I was watching it. <laughs> Famously it, pointy building. Yeah. And I thought the episode was going to end there. They like yeah. touchingly hold hands, music swells. Mm. And then I thought that was it. I thought we were done. Mm-hmm. I really mm-hmm. did not expect them to do the whole like getting to Shadar Lagoth and then the whole thing in the city in one episode. I really thought it was going to be two. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like just just the, the, the vibes of Shadar Lagoth, like they do such a good job of making them completely rancid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, just everything. It made me think of um, vertical cinema, which is just like cinema, but on like the TikTok format. And I remember, yeah, like filming on. My yeah, phone. and I just like remember going to like a talk or seeing something about like using this to just basically create horror because, like, in all of Shadow Logoth, because the buildings are so close together, because everything is so uppy downy, mm. like, it's almost like changed the format of the screen to just be like this really narrow, constricting space. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. For Mobile Suit Breakdown, we did a special bonus episode with our friend Sean talking about uh, tragedy and how tragedy tends to be very vertically constructed because Mm. it's about feeling small and constrained, but also like dominated by powers above you. Yeah. Yeah, just like, I'm just thinking about that, like, opening shot of Shadow Logoth when you see the wall and it's cracked straight down the middle and it's... Oh, and then you find out that there's like no door and that's the only way in and you're like, what the fuck? It's just, it's so fucked up. I love it. Yeah, and the fact that the Trollocs won't even enter it, it's like, that is the biggest reason you should not be going in here right now. Well, yeah. and the whole episode is these big, like, um, either sort of claustrophobic woods scenes or nice, big, wide shots of the desolate plains as they're riding through them, which again, beautiful and also dreadful. Um, mm. But when they get to Shadar Logoth, it's a lot of vertical pans. Like when they go into that kind of looks like a cathedral where they're going to spend the night, we get mm. a long, mm. slow pan up so we can see the whole building. Yeah. And it's like like contrasting that again with like the uppy downiness of like the woods versus the openness of the plains also being desolate and bleak. Whenever they stop in that cathedral, like there's there's a moment there's like a scene wherever like Matt comes over to talk to Perrin who's like grieving his dead lesbian wife that he killed and like you can see it's very open in the back and you just see like Lan taking care of Maureen like but really far away like it's they managed to cram or get that like bleak and desolate feeling within one of those uppy downy buildings like you mm-hmm. you it both you got both mm-hmm. I did really like what they did with Shadar Lagoth but um it was also very clear that they had watched the Minds of Moria scenes yep. from uh, yep. Lord of the Absolutely. Rings many times during the creation of this set. Honestly, a lot of Lord of the Rings inspiration, like obviously Minds of Moria, the city itself reminds me a lot of, oh gosh, whatever, like the city ruins that they're fighting in outside of Minas Tirith, like the one across the river, oh, and yeah. I can't remember the name of it, Yeah, but that's like all white instead of all black. I had a lot of moments watching this where 
I was trying to remember things from the book and I would say, oh, doesn't such and such happen or won't such and such happen later? And basically every time Tom was like, I think that was from Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and to be fair to Nina, I think sometimes it happens in both. Yeah, because like the, the river crossing scene is straight out of Lord of the Rings as well. Yep. Yeah, the river crossing. Um, Like losing the horses. Right, losing the horses. Yeah, there were a few moments where I was like, wait... <laughs> Hang on. Because mm-hmm. Sodor Logoth is like, when they go through, it's like when they go through like Mirkwood in The Hobbit, and there's like, the forest has really bad vibes, and if they touch things in it, they'll mm-hmm. die or whatever. Oh, but see, I got I got Minds of Moria because like, they're chased in there by monsters, they don't want to be there, it's the mm-hmm. last resort, and then things seem relatively safe until the one like, roguish idiot in the party uh, touches yeah. something he's not supposed he, to. He picks up a duck in a dungeon. You should never yeah. pick up a duck in a dungeon. Um, and then he he like brings the horror, and then they get separated. The party loses their leader. Like mm. yeah, it's it's mm. Minds of Moria. Never split the party. I mean, I think yeah. it's even it's even like color graded, like the Minds of Moria were. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Moraine when she wakes up and she's like, "Where have you brought us?" And Lance is like, <laughs> gives her like the gym office look. She's like, "You've doomed us all." Has like a very same energy of fly, you fools. Mm, mm. Um, I was gonna say it was like fool of a toque, fool of a warder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although uh, like I, my my interpretation of that line was just like it's not really her talking. It's like the vibes of the city have like driven mm. her to be also rancid. Um, yeah. But she also even before when she just noticed they were near it. She has that moment with Lan where she's like, mm, I don't know that I think this is a good idea. Yeah. 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 Because, like, the whole time through the, like, the episode, Lan has been doing, like, GPS stuff where he goes off right. and finds what's, yeah. like, scouts about the place and then is like, we're going this way. And so he's just been like, let's go closer to the incredibly mm-hmm. cursed and rancid city that is around here. I liked Lan's exposition when they get inside the cathedral. Like, and he, you know, explains some history of the city and how they're the ones who promised aid to Menethrin. And Matt's like, I've never heard you talk this much before. <laughs> yeah. It's a cute moment. Yeah. His, his line. Okay, so one thing, two things. Couple of things. <laughs> Couple of Bro, things. I just got one question for you. <laughs> what the fuck? I loved that exposition, um, partly because you can tell in it just how uncomfortable Lan is talking. Like, he doesn't. Yeah. Every sentence is as short as it can be. He does not mm-hmm. want to be, be doing this. But also the contrast to the exposition that Moraine did earlier. Yeah. Because she's so natural. The story flows. It's like Mm -hmm. she is a storyteller. She is a talker. And Lan is just like, this is bad. (laughs) Bad things happened here. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's really great. Uh, Speaking of her telling the story. Yes. I love the singing. The singing made me really happy. And this whole episode feels like like a charm offensive for for Matt. Uh, And how nice it is to have him sort of notice that Moraine is flagging and how exhausted she is. And knowing that he can't do much, but he can sing and maybe cheer her up and maybe that will give everyone a little boost. And uh, also him giving the knife to Perrin, him talking down Rand, all of these nice little moments, but then, of course, he is the idiot who picks up the very yeah. obviously cursed dagger. Yeah. He's the Sokka of the group. <laughs> yeah. I I didn't notice that, like, because that, the singing scene, I love the singing scene, but my one, like, 
the thing that takes me out of it is like why do they start singing like it just it feels like it comes out of nowhere for me and like i never i didn't put it together that like when i put it together that they're all like surrounding maureen she's gotten like a quadraphonic sound barbershop quartet of like two rivers kids but like i never put it together that like i just i I noticed him looking over at her and then he starts singing and i was like that's so random why would he do that yeah (laughs) he's trying to be nice Yeah. yeah he's the observant one i mean he does the same thing with perrin yeah you can really tell like how much Moraine loves this. Like she lights up, and like you mentioned, Tom, like she's a storyteller, and you can tell she's like so happy to tell the story. It like that just flows so naturally from him singing about a place, like not even realizing that like Menethrin is two rivers. Yeah, like R- R- Rosamond Pike levels of acting, like in this scene and also the scene where she's getting interrogated and like lying quote quote to the white cloaks where like she's doing a really good job of acting there and then here when she's telling the story like like the more 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 in the character great actress like mm-hmm. yeah i love though that they that she is very high-handed and very imperious and not really interested in explaining herself to these kids uh and how frustrating that is for everyone and that was one of the things that I liked about her character in the book, that she she doesn't need them to like her. She doesn't care if they like her. Mm-hmm. She has mm-hmm. bigger fish to fry. <laughs> and I appreciate that they kept that. Yeah, yeah. I, I did see like a, a article a few times on Twitter that was like, ah, the one scene that Riff Jenkins fought to keep because they really liked it from the books and stuff. And I was like, okay, yeah, good, good choice. So much of what's in this episode relies on this feeling of like paranoia and exhaustion that all of our our heroes need to have. Um, and doing all of this in one episode, I think, makes it hard for that to work. They have to sort of speed run into it. And I, you know, they convey it. It, it works. Um, but it does feel like it hits a little fast. Mm. Like there's there's one moment where they say, I haven't seen signs of Trollocs for days. And I'm like. You've been traveling for days? What? Yeah. I thought this I thought this was like day two of the journey. Yeah. Because there's there's like quite a few like horse montages. And Rand's frustration does feel slightly abrupt. Yeah. Again, because we don't have the same like sense of time having passed. I think whenever because whenever he does start like yelling at Maureen, it recontextualizes all the previous shots of him just like staring at Lan like suspiciously. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, it kind of is like, oh, like this boy's been thinking. Um, like he's just mm-hmm. been here typing blue as sus in the chat in his mind. It's like you understand where he's coming from, obviously. And and the whole thing with him seeing Marin wake Egwene up and talk to her definitely like compounds on that in his mind. You really get the feeling that he's starting to feel like like what i mean he mentions it right like when they get to the white tower and like they find out who the dragon are born is like what are they just gonna like kick all the other ones out and just like ditch them and leave them in the woods to die Mm. it's like and and you mentioned last week sarah how it felt like they really had no like it wasn't consensual them leaving the village and rand's feelings here really kind of hammer that home of like he's starting to be like this sucks i don't want to be here like (laughs) It, and, and you know, you have Matt telling him, like, yeah, but she can throw fireballs. So we should hang out with her and stick with her and, like, survive until we're not needed anymore. But, like, what kind of 
makes it hard to empathize with Rand is how he's like, he's really taking it out on Egwene. And we get a weird resolution to that in them holding hands, looking at the beautiful, desolate skyline of Shadar Logoth. But there's doesn't it doesn't feel like anything led up to him being like, okay, I'm I'm calm now. It just kind of happens. Yeah, like he let it out, but didn't resolve it. Yeah, it's like no, buddy, that's gonna come flooding back into you if you don't talk about it. Yeah, and I don't, I don't think the resolution with Egwene is a real resolution, right? Mm. Yeah, it's a band aid. He was kind of taking it out on her, but didn't necessarily realize how much that was affecting her until she confronts him. Mm. Yeah, and basically says, "It seems like you hate me now," and he's like, "Oh, that's that's not what I was going for. Mm. <laughs> I was not." I'm upset, but no, I don't hate you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do kind of feel for him because they're having this confrontation and Egwene is like, don't you get it? Now that Nynaeve is gone, I can't be her apprentice. The only thing left for me is to go and become an Aes Sedai. Yeah. And Rand is like, the only thing left for you? The only option? Yeah. But I want to have kids. <laughs> because there was another thing you were going to do before you decided to become Nynaeve's apprentice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, honestly, like, I kind of get the vibe in this episode that, like, Rand is more upset about Egwene breaking up with him than he is about the Trollocs. <laughs> I think he might be. Yeah, yeah, he might very well be. It's, yeah. He's kind of taking it out on the whole concept of women. That's kind of, like, underlying a lot of what he says to Moraine when he's yelling at her. Yeah. The whole, like, well, what purpose is there for a man at the White Tower? Like, obviously, Egwene's going to have a great life. What about me? Yeah, we'll be errand boys. I'm also wondering about um, how much would an average Two Rivers youth know about what happens to men with magic? <laughs> because we get the scene in the very first episode that shows yeah. us what happens, but would like an average person know? And is that in the back of his mind that like basically the the men of them are in danger? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. I. I I think the implication is that he knows that it would be something bad if any of them could mm-hmm. channel. Yeah. I don't know that like we need to know if he knows what that is specifically or how bad it is or mm-hmm. what exactly happens. But like, I think it's pretty clear that like he knows that something it would be bad mm-hmm. for a man yeah. who could channel at the White Tower. Yeah, yeah. yeah. God, I I really love Matt coming in at the end of that scene, like saying the only sensible thing to be said. <laughs> Yep. Yeah. Like, Matt in this episode really is just like a person with common sense goes on a fantasy adventure and is like, what the fuck is this? (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, Max, in the last podcast, you pointed out that of all these kids, Rand has had the most stable upbringing by far. Rand is used to having a plan. Rand is used to having a a pretty good trajectory in mind for what his life is going to be like. Mm -hmm. And that plan has been completely destroyed and he has no trajectory. And now it's just a matter of like, surfing the currents and trying to survive and matt has been surfing the currents and trying to survive for as long as we can tell yeah 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 and perrin is just busy having grief um perrin is just internalizing everything apparently perrin's parents are still alive yeah i noticed that that he mentioned that to matt when they were talking the cathedral oh yeah i love that i love that conversation so much and like, you know, not just not just because I mean, yes, because it's a very tender moment between Matt and Perrin, but also because like of how loaded the dialogue is because 
of, you know, Matt is saying things and be like, hey, Perrin, remember your wife who was so great? And Perrin, who killed his wife, is taking that in a completely different way. And there's just so many levels to it. And like, it's yeah. just, it's really good. Powerful. Well, a bunch of times in this episode, uh, Egwene says, like, the Trollocs killed Nynaeve and Layla. Like, she says it over and over again. And always those two names. Yeah. Yeah. To the point where it sounds like she knows that Perrin killed Layla and is like trying to get him to admit it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know she doesn't, but it really sounds like she does. Yeah. yeah. It's like when you're walking around the house, like, who ate all of these cookies? <laughs> Someone ate the last cookie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and like, you know, again, every time they, or maybe not every time, but like, you know, they do. Whenever someone's like, "Ah, the Trollocs killed Layla," like we cut to Perrin, who immediately starts crying, like every time. Yeah, it's like, oh, which again is something that reads to us one way and would read to the characters another way, because of course he's crying over his beloved dead pregnant wife. Yeah, Yeah. and and then the like the wound on his leg that he won't show anybody is the metaphor, right, for this emotional wound that he refuses Mm -hmm. to tell anyone about. Well, and a a certain amount of self-punishment, right? He feels like he deserves to be in pain. Yeah. Fucking, whenever, like, Matt hands him the dagger and is like, ah, your your wife made this. Like, he was staring at the dagger and I was like, Perrin, are you gonna, like, fucking hurt yourself with this? What the fuck? Yeah, I was like, oh, but maybe he shouldn't have that. Well, it's it's because Matt knew he was gonna get a cooler dagger later on. (laughs) Matt had read ahead in the script. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, he knew. Matt's been reading the books. <laughs> the other thing I really love about that scene with Perrin and Matt is it is more characterization of Layla, even without her being here. Because yeah. it tells us a lot about her as a person that Matt was probably asking for a weapon. And she said, well, I don't do weapons, but I'll mm-hmm. make you this knife that you will probably use for thousands of other things long before you ever need to use it against a person. It's fun to imagine Matt as a total edgelord teenager going to the blacksmith like, can you make me like a knife? Like a like a sick ass knife? Like a cool knife. Yeah. yeah. Something really cool. Curved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like you put like a big ruby in the, in the hilt of the yeah. dagger. Make it look evil. <laughs> oh. Speak of, of Matt's new knife, like it's so like, he, he wakes up, he's woken up by something mysterious, he goes out the door, down a side street, down another alley, into another house, down several corridors, into a room, looks under some rubble, inside a box, and then there's a knife. It's like, damn, that's... That knife really wanted you to find it, huh? Gamer thoughts, not only has Matt been reading the books, he has been reading the walkthrough. <laughs> yeah, he has a little waypoint icon. <laughs> he's got his quest markers up. <laughs> Was... Matt picking that dagger up, the sort of like trigger to make the nasty fog, that's, fungus, evil thing come out. Yeah, that's like, what I interpreted it as. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. yeah. like he took something. Mm-hmm. Did the one thing he was not supposed to do. Yeah. yeah. And everything is his fault. Yeah. Shadowrock is just so cool. It's just like, I just love the idea of like, yeah, it's evil in here. It has nothing to do with the dark one. It's just like the nasty vibes of everyone in here just coalesced into this horrible, evil carpet. The people who built a walled city and shut themselves away from the problems of the world and refused to help anybody else. Mm-hmm. And, they, and they just like ate themselves. Yeah. yeah. You think there's a metaphor there? Nah. Nah. <laughs> um, and actually, in Shadar Lagoth is one of the uh, CinemaSins Ding continuity errors that I noticed. Mm-hmm. Because when the shadows 
when the, the carpet shows up and it splits the kids up. Um, and they're like, I think they're outside the cathedral at that point. The horses run off when, because I think they only, they have like, at that point, I think they only have like three horses left because, no? Well, because they have a horse each was, and one horse dies. One horse right. dies. I thought the only white horse was Lance. Is that right? Morian has the white horse. Lance on a black horse. Okay, but there's one white horse, yeah? Yeah. The white horse runs off from the shadows, and then when Moraine and Lan exit the cathedral, the white horse is still there. I was like, huh? Hmm. I, I just thought the horse stopped once it got out of the city. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I, I mean, I thought it was only one white horse, and like the, we see the white horse throughout the rest of the sort of chase sequence out of the city. Maybe I got confused, and I'm CinemaSin dinging myself. Forgetting something wrong, thinking it was a continuity error, but the white horse is a notoriously difficult actor and had just pieced <laughs> mm-hmm. out to go to the craft services table for that scene. Yeah, sure. I just, I mean, I don't like horses, so I, the less I see of them, the better. Yeah, Max, I can't believe that you paid so much attention to some horses. Like, this is very out of character for you. Um, I guess while I'm on the topic, the only other continuity error is after when Moraine hands Lan her ring when they meet the alt right. Alt white. The very next scene afterwards, she's wearing the ring. And then when they get to the second camp, Lan hands her her ring back. Because he'd been whoops. holding it in his little pouch the entire time. And I was like, huh, I see you. I see you, Wheel of Time, leaving little Easter eggs for me. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> I liked how this whole episode sort of sits in the shadow of this terrible history that we learn about. Mm. Like we saw the big towers, you know, the, the overgrown skyscrapers in the first episode. Mm-hmm. But that episode is very much in a time, in the place. Um, they're celebrating this festival like it's in the now. And this episode is a lot about this this like looming shadow of history that all of them are are trapped in. And it really goes to that that cyclical nature of the mm-hmm. wheel. Yeah. Yeah. Like I think we get one other piece of like old broken architecture in this episode, which is like a big like aqueduct bridge motorway thing that they go under. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and um, at one point they camp in what was clearly at some point a building. Yeah, um, but is but is so overgrown that now it just looks like a cave. Oh, yeah. oh yeah, yeah, the the, the cave building, um, perfectly square entrance to the cave. Okay, I do think that there's this you know there's Yoshikage Kira, there's the like evil carpet. The scariest thing this entire episode was the bat scene when he oh, that yeah, was. The- Lot. Pulls a butt out of his mouth. Yeah. Holy shit! And then when he wakes up, and there are actually dead bats. Like, yeah, it wasn't a dream. Um, I noticed that he. So yeah, because Rand had slept outside, and he pulled the one bat out of his throat. I don't think that that happened in the other kids because they slept inside. Um, and you notice, I, I guess Moraine had put up some sort of like enchantment or ward around the building because you can yeah. very clearly see like a semicircle of bats around the entrance of the the doorway, and like they're all there. And like you know, Matt mentions that like it's as if their necks had snapped in mid-flight, which presumably, if they're flying towards the 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 cave building thing, like they hit this invisible magic wall, and it's, oh, they're dead. Is a is a cute little I guess I guess more showing like what Maureen can do, presumably, without telling you. That mm-hmm. never occurred to me. Because I saw like yeah. Matt because Matt is like squatting down talking about the bats and they're all in a line. I just thought he'd line them up because he's a little gremlin. Like Look what I found, guys. <laughs> she's just like playing with the bats. I was like, what the fuck are you doing, Matt? Because like he's like holding one and stuff. Look, free bats. Mm. 
Yeah, don't touch that. You're going to get a disease. You, Matt, have you been vaccinated against rabies? I don't think you have. <laughs> I'm going to guess that the thing they saw in their dream was probably the dark one. Would you like me to write that down as an, as an official Max prediction? Uh, yes. Look, all I'm saying, you see you see some guy with all in shadow except for his burning red eyes. I'm going to assume he is the ultimate evil. It's a pretty easy assumption to make. You need to be a little more subtle about it, but Mr. Dark One, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe if he wore all white. Yeah, there you go. Come on, Dark One. Why are you like relying on like the old like racist and colonial tropes of, of Light and Shadow as good and evil? Come on. I know. Come on. It's 2021. <laughs> I wanted to mention um, the oaths that oh, Maureen yes. mentions to Egwene when she takes her out in the woods and is like, hey, I'm a woman, you're a woman, let's do magic. Um... Because it, we get a lot of dreams are powerful, words are powerful. Because when she asks Egwene to, if she knows the oaths, she like says like, "Oh, you can't tell." I and Warren's like, "No, no, no, exact verbiage. Mm -hmm. Like the the way it's worded is so specific, and it becomes this like rules of omission that Moraine very deftly uses to get out of all these situations. Because it's like I, I wrote it exactly down: one, to speak no word that is not true." Two, to make no weapon with which one person may kill another. And three, never to use with a one power as a weapon except in the last extreme defense of her life or the life of her warder or another Aes Sedai. And it, those rules set up so much of what Moraine can and does do that is so interesting that like, you know, she's like, okay, I know exactly. And the fact that it is an oath, not just like, yeah, I'm not going to do it, but it is like a, like it is a literally binding thing that she cannot break this these oaths so like mm. everything she does she does so knowingly because th the main thing that kind of spurs that on is when they cross the Terran when she summons the whirlpool and the ferryman like swims back and you know wants, wants to get his son and he drowns she's like you killed him he's like uh-uh there is literally no way I could have killed him that was all on him mm. and it sets up this really cool thing of like you know another very cool way of showing that Moraine is like you know really knows what she's doing yeah, because I noticed in that ferryman scene, like watching it for the second time, I noticed that as like she makes the whirlpool, and then as soon as he jumps in the river, she like withdraws her. She like stops channeling because yep. it's never to use the one power as a yep. weapon, but she can kill people with the things like the environment that she creates. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, she can throw a brick at you. <laughs> <laughs> well, and she can. She did a lot to defend the village, but that's because she and Lan were in it. Yes. Yeah. Well, and she was fighting Trollocs. Right. Mm -hmm. I think you're allowed to kill Trollocs. Yeah, I don't think uh, the the um, oaths in this episode said never to use the one power's weapon except against Shadowspawn. Because mm -hmm. I, I think that might be a books thing, but it wasn't in the thing that Max just read, which I thought was weird. Mm. Um, I mean, maybe the assumption is that if you encounter a Trolloc, you are in danger. Like, yeah. yeah. Full stop. <laughs> all circumstances. Right, but that it does set up this tension of if any of the kids think about that in detail, they will realize she doesn't have that same obligation to defend their lives yes. that she yeah. does for her, her own and lands. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I I also like to me they feel like the Asimov robotics laws. Yes, but mm -hmm. like the Aes Sedai version of them. Isomov. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess going back to the scene when she's talking to the questioner, everything she says is so deliberate. 
Like, where did you, what, where did you come from? What town did you, I, I think, like, what town were you last at? And she says, Terran Ferry. Not a town. It is the, not, there's not a town called Fa Terran Ferry. She took a ferry across the Terran, but, like, <laughs> that's where she last come from. So she's allowed to say it, because if she wasn't, she wouldn't be, she wouldn't be able to say anything. I, I like that you've um, interpreted it that way, because I hate to tell you this, but there is a town called Terran Ferry. Oh, okay. But there's no way you would know that. <laughs> yeah. And I like that it still makes sense. And it's like it's very fun, like watching that scene and like listening to everything she says very carefully and be like, "Oh yeah, every single every like word yeah. she said was true, but yeah. she was telling a big lie." Mm -hmm. I'm going to see my sister, and it's like, "Oh, all, all, all yesterday's are my sister, so I'm allowed to say it. It's great." Watching the episode a second time with that context and knowing the rules, when Moraine is setting them up for this encounter with the White Cloaks, when she's like, "All right, keep your mouth shut, no unnecessary talking, only tell the truth." Like, as long as you can, don't lie. She says precisely, I am a woman from a fallen house. Or like, I'm a lady from a fallen house. So that must be true. Mm. She doesn't say, you should pretend that. She says, I am. Right. Huh. Exact verbiage. Ooh. Some nice little mm. hints about her past. Oh. For the eagle-eared watcher. Ooh. And Lan tells us where he's from. Does he? The Borderlands. Borderlands. Oh, Wherever yeah. those are. It's a video game franchise. Hit video. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> oh, gosh. I only just put this together, but the, the like, alt-right guys being like, and where are you from? Yep, yep, yep. Oh, hmm. Hmm. In this land that we claim is ours. Yeah. And you think that they'd, like, talk to Egwene about that, too. It's like, <laughs> ugh. Ugh. Strong, where are you really from vibes? Oh my God. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, you know, where, where's your family from? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Is there anything, because I think we've talked extensively about the White Cloaks, we've talked extensively about Shadow Logoth. Do we have anything more to say about, like, Moiraine and, like, is she sus? Like, what are our vibes there? Is there anything else to say or have we kind of covered it all? It's like, I I trust her. I trust her. She very knowingly when she left the camp, she's like, all right, baby, go throw your tantrum. I'm leaving. I don't want to take care of you anymore. Clearly knowing they're going to be like, oh, shit, we should probably head back with her because we're going to get killed in the woods. Like, it, it's like it feels like a more not to talk about Lord of the Rings for the hundredth time this episode. Mm -hmm. It really does feel like a more cold and calloused Gandalf, like mm. this powerful mentor figure who like, you know, knows way more than they let on. And is like even seeming cold, and Gandalf doesn't really do that as much as Moraine does. But like you can, you know, you're in good hands. It's like I don't think she's sus. I think what Matt said is true in that she is doing this for her own purposes. But while she's doing this, she is going to do what she can to keep the kids safe because we know that she's like using her magic at her own expense to keep them, you know, in in good strength and stamina. Like even like if she didn't actually care about them, she wouldn't be doing that. You know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Though that negative read of Gandalf is something that is present in The Lord of the Rings. The Fellowship doesn't feel that way about him. And so we as the readers don't, yeah. Yeah. but a lot of people do. Um, you know, Matt has that line about her, like, she has a purpose for us and she will keep us alive until that purpose is fulfilled. And then she probably doesn't care about us. And like, that mirrors what the questioner says to the commander of the White Cloaks when he's like, you're called to battle. We questioners have a higher purpose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like the White Cloaks, 
her eyes are on some like bigger picture problem. And so she's not particularly must by the ferryman who dies, not in the same way that the kids are, because she views it as a necessary sacrifice the greater good. for this bigger, more important thing that she's going for. Yeah, the greater good. Yeah. yeah. And that's like the show is constructed to make her more likable than them. And she is. But that's scary when you encounter somebody with that much power who views people from such a high elevation. Yeah. 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 Okay, so I think that about does it. Before we go to the spoiler zone, I kind of want to ask Max, like, what was your impression about whenever Perrin gets his leg licked by a hecking paparino? <laughs> um, yeah, that was interesting. I already, I'm not going to say the whole joke of there are two wolf packs outside you again because it already happened. It was really fun. You had to be there. Um, I, oh gosh, I don't know. I mean, there's something there, clearly, the fact that this dude has just a gash in his leg and instead of eating him alive, the wolf was like, oh, cool, a nice, it's a, it's a water fountain, but for dogs, <laughs> yummy, lick, lick. Um, I don't know. It, it, it It's clearly setting Perrin up for something, like if, if he's like the Caesar Milan of Wheel of Time or something like that. The dog whisperer. Okay, thank you. There might be another American yeah, personality figure. Yeah, I was about to Google that. <laughs> um, but I... I honestly, it showed so little because the only thing you ever get is that one scene. And then, like, we don't really get anything else from Perrin. Again, like, get that wound checked out because he did just jump into the murky water and walked through a swamp later in the episode. Mm. Like, that's going to get infected. Um, but I don't know. I, I feel like I have so few pieces to mm -hmm. talk about what the deal with Perrin is, aside from saying, yeah, there's something up with that kid. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now I'm realizing in this episode, Perrin has the interaction with the wolves. Matt finds the dagger. Egwene gets the necklace mm -hmm. and has this moment with the source. Rand is the only one who <laughs> like, okay, what? <laughs> he's getting he's getting DMs from the Dark One in the form of bats in his throat. Yeah, That's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Everyone else gets cool stuff. <laughs> yeah, I feel like Rand's. Like the Rand moment TM in this episode was when he like let loose and yelled at Moirin. Yeah. Like that feels like like his thing. Cause mm -hmm. that, like at that yeah. point of the episode, I was like, ooh, like this boy has like a lot more internality than I thought he did. Yeah. Cause now like every time there's like a shot of him just like staring into the distance, I'm like, oh, he's like thinking about something. What's going on there? Years are turning. Yeah. It is funny that like Rand is kind of like. Yeah, that's a that's a really really good uh, observation, Nina. He's just some random. Ha! <sighs> I forgive you. Um, thank you all the regular listeners for tuning in. Uh, it's been a pleasure to have you. You've made some wonderful contributions to the conversation that we all heard and responded to. Um, so for that, enjoy your week. Have a have a good life. Goodbye. Um, and now, you know, I feel like I'm being very a little mean. more hostile than it could have been. <laughs> have a very wonderful week, and we will see you on the next regular episode of Nevermind the Trollics. Okay, gamers, 
let's let's talk wills. Let's talk. Let's talk shop. Happy time. Time for never mind the spoilers. You have been warned. I was very pleased they kept the healing the horses. Okay, you know, whenever she was healing the horses, for a second, I thought she was just painting them black. <laughs> it's camouflage. We can't let them see us in the woods. I, I was like, what? Oh, yeah. And then I like remembered that she like heals the horses. Yeah. Other horse spoiler talk. I think in this episode, we get a shout out to Bella the horse. Like, yeah, she gets- yeah. Bella. Bella well, the horse. Bella, who is the, Bella- who is the most Bill the Pony horse. Yeah. Like- yeah oh, my God. It's such a similar name. Right, and doesn't Bella wind up back at uh, Two Rivers? Don't they find, doesn't somebody who goes back to their old village find her there? I think from what I remember, the deal with Bella in the books is that she is Egwene's horse for like the entire series. Okay. And it's just like, she's just there constantly with Egwene, <laughs> but like she makes it to the last book like as a named horse. Um, but I, do, I, can't re- I don't remember like her journey there. That's incredible survivability for a horse. To be fair, naming your horse dramatically increases their survivability. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like one of my... This is completely not relevant to the show at all, but, like, I'm pretty sure most horses in Wheel of Time, like, get named. Yeah. I feel like in the books, we know the names of Moraine's and Land's horses. Yeah, Land's horse is called Mandarp, which means... Blade. Mandark? Like from Dexter's Laboratory? Mandarb with a B at the end. Uh, I think Moraine's okay. horse is called Aldieb, which means something else. Rand's horse is called Cloyd. I can't remember what Matt's and Perrin's horses are called. Or Final Fantasy 7? Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, Matt's horse is called Sephiroth. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Perrin's is named Rufus Shinra. It's weird. Yeah. <laughs> which in the old tongue means. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, this is, this is animal related, but not horse related. I liked how this episode kind of sets up the like supernatural relationship between these animals and the power. And like, we have the bats kind of as messengers of the dark one. And then there's definitely something going on with the wolves. Mm. Like that's, it's all eerie and, and weird. And there's definitely something uncanny about them. Yeah. Yeah. To be I don't really have much more stuff to say about the wolves other than, ah, cool wolves. Like, we're starting the mm-hmm. wolf thing. Cool. My L in this episode, this is not wolf related. My <laughs> L in this episode is that we saw the white cloaks and I remembered exactly one white cloak's name. And I was like, I bet that's so-and-so. And I'm pretty sure it's not actually Pedrin Nile. But um, that was the one white cloak name I remembered. <laughs> um, Yeah, like, I, the white cloak name I remembered was like, Bayar, who that is, that's not the White Cloak either. The one in this episode is Eamon Falda, which oh. I only got because it was in the credits. Oh yeah, and then there was um A- Asunawa, Asunama. There's an Asunawa. Yeah. These names are fun. I don't know who that is. He's like the leader of the questioners. Yeah, uh, <sighs> I'm sure he'll be in the credits. Maybe they'll even say his name in the episode whenever he appears. He's not going to show up until like season. Four or whatever yeah um, do we know how much like is this season going to be the first book or do we know how much it's going to cover i do know this i think um i'm pretty sure the first material from the first three books is all covered this season oh wow Interesting. And there's eight episodes i just yeah. feel like so much happens in the first three books like 
The yeah, first one is a very I, self-contained, like, hero's journey kind of thing. And then the second and third, I feel like, are much more sprawling. Yeah, what I think is going to happen, and again, this is also spoilers because I know that Elaine, the like princess, mm-hmm. has been cast for season two, which therefore means that she's not in this season. So what I'm assuming they're doing is kind of things from all the first three books will appear in this season, but then they'll kind of go back and sort of not do everything at the same time. Mm-hmm. So I'm assuming they're going to like skip going to Camelin and doing princess stuff and go straight to Faldauer or whatever. I, I guess when I think about it, the ending of the first book could really happen at almost any point. Like, <laughs> yeah, I don't remember. I don't remember enough of it to speak to that. But like once everybody splits up, the order in which you cover what everybody is doing is very flexible. Yeah. Yeah. And that's another thing calling back to Lord of the Rings. It's the fellowship breaking apart. You, We have very clear delineated groups that are very clearly going to go do their own thing, you know, for the next however many episodes until they eventually reunite, which I think is cool. Yeah, yeah. It'll be fun seeing what they do to motivate certain of these groups to keep going because like Rand and Matt have established in the course of this episode that they don't really have a plan and they don't want to go to the White Tower. And so it'll be fun seeing what happens with them. I did think of that. And I feel like the main thing there is Rand's like, all right, let's go find a queen, maybe. I feel like that's probably going to be the main motivation there. I I know this is a different kind of spoiler cast, but you did basically say Rand's line from the next episode. (laughs) Oh, I I did? Yeah. That's cool, tremendous. Like, (laughs) I, ju- I just wanted to give you that gratification right now. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, um, hang on. Nina and I were talking about this. The blue Aes Sedai are the lore keepers, right? That's their deal? I think you're thinking of the browns. The blues are social justice warriors. Mm, yeah, I thought right. blues were some something to do with like being more out in the world and lots of journeying and... Yeah, I think literally the descriptor for them is like, ah, uh, they dedicate themselves to writing injustices in the world. Is the red the Spanish Inquisition? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty. Yeah. So that's what, well, that's sure well, what it seemed from the first they're episode. The, they're the Manish Inquisition. Oh, 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 oh. oh my god. <laughs> okay, what the, the last thing, the actually only thing I really have for spoiler cast here is that I want to mention how different the introduction of the White Cloaks is compared to the books. Because, like, in the books, the White Cloaks kind of, like, they're clearly not good guys, but they're not, like, cartoonishly evil. Mm-hmm. They're just kind of, like, cops. And it, some people probably think they're good. I mean, they're like um, they're like crusaders or, or, or witch hunters. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I just wanted to shout out the sort of, not change, but, like, tonal change of making them, like, so much more horrific most rancid vibes imaginable yeah how embarrassing for land to get snuck up on i know i i'll give him a pass on this he was clearly very distressed of like moraine like basically on the brink of death Mm. and nynaeve Mm. is like an experienced woods person and after however long they've been on the road she probably smells exactly like the forest (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah I like her sort of reintroduction here as being the one person who's capable of sneaking up on land, yeah. even if he was very distracted yeah. at the time. I do, however, um, think her strategy of 
gently laying the side of her <laughs> knife on his shoulder and threatening to cut his throat is maybe not a very effective one. <laughs> like she's not in throat cutting position there. Well, she doesn't really want to. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, she knows that she needs them alive to find the other kids. I think she's enough of a girl boss that she could do it if she wanted to. We stand. We sure do. Um, I'm finished here. Yeah. We're out. Okay, gamers. I mean, listeners. I mean, gamers. Um, that will do us for Nevermind the Spoilers. Thank you very much to our even more favorite listeners for listening. Don't tell the other ones that we said that about you, but we love you the best, obviously. Um, you can find us on Twitter at uh, NVM the Trollocs. You can find all of our personal Twitters there as well. Those are in the description. We all do other podcasts. Those are also in the description, and you should check them out because we're all fucking geniuses. Woo! Uh, show email show email as well actually that's a good point thank you max um if you want to interact with us and talk to us we have decided not to set up a discord server or anything what we are going to do is have a questions mailbag uh, at the end of the series so if you have things that you want to respond to us ask us about um send those over to nevermindthetrollocs at gmail.com and we will get to everything at the end bye 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 Bye. The wheel of time turns and podcasts come and pass, recording audacity files that become MP3s. MP3s that give rise to hot takes, but even the takes are long forgotten by the time a new episode comes out. For one podcast called Nevermind the Trollocs by Some, a podcast about shows yet to come, a podcast about books long past, a five-star review was written. This five-star review on the podcatcher of your choice was not the ending. There are no beginnings or endings when rating podcasts with five stars about the Wheel of Time, but it was an ending. <laughs>